Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week on the show, we have the GOAT, or one of the GOATs, especially of the last few decades. We're talking with Dan Pink. Now, you probably know who Dan is, but if you don't, that's okay. That's why you listen here, right? We're going to bring you the smart people. Dan is the author of five. Yes, count them. Five New York Times best-selling books, including his newest, which is what we're talking about, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. He's one of my favorite writers, and yes, this is the second time we've had him on the show. If you love Dan and you love this episode and you want more, go ahead and check out episode number 85. By the way, that was March 24th, 2013, almost exactly nine years ago. My gosh, we've been doing this a long time. I'm going to let this interview do the talking. But one thing I will say, what you will learn in this episode is how to use regret to further define your values and to make better life decisions going forward. So many important insights from this episode. Can't wait to bring it to you. If you enjoy it, check this out. Send this episode to a friend. You can't tell me they're not going to enjoy this. You can't tell me they don't need to understand more about regret and their values and how to move forward and how to make decisions. All of that good stuff. Share the episode. Also, go to your phone, pull out your podcast app and make sure you're subscribed to the show. If it's on Apple, you have to hit follow. It's on Spotify, you know, follow it, all those good things. Make sure you're getting every episode. Let's get into our episode this week. We are talking to Dan Pink about his brand new book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Enjoy. Dan, it's so good to have you back on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, I mentioned that we had John nine years ago, and I didn't prepare you for this. What is something you regret from the past nine years of your life since we talked last? Um, I think that I regret never taking an extended um, vacation or sabbatical. 
that I have been basically racing forward almost at ex- almost that entire time. Um, you know, because I like what I do, and I'm also you know I also my my kids in that time have that's what's that uh, eleven years. Yeah, my kids have grown up in that time, so I had a busy family life and a busy professional life, and I'm just was racing and never really had time to hit the brakes, stop, reflect, take an extended time off. And I'm feeling the, and and post-pandemic, I'm feeling the effects of that. What role did that play? Well, the pandemic, um, I think for a lot of us, it was because we were stuck in place, because there was a lot of uncertainty, because there was a lot of fear, it was not a restorative two years for anybody. And, and so not only had I put postponed restoration before that, but those two years blocked off restoration. So now, 11 years after we first talked, Chris, you know, I am a husk, a desiccated husk of a human being. <laughs> <laughs> you are a strapping young man. Don't don't fool everybody here. I, I appreciate your answer, and I'm actually glad it started here. I didn't mean to dive in like this, but I got two little boys, six and three. I think about it every day, the balance between my aspirations and knowing I will regret not spending more time with them, even though I know it now. What advice would you give for somebody really professionally driven due to the belief in what they do, but also knowing that family is clearly the most important thing? Uh, I guess the advice that I would give is, is to pay more attention. That is, don't go through the motions. Actually, really pay attention to and notice. Like, what are your kids saying? And what can they do today that they couldn't do yesterday? And what are the questions they are asking? It's very easy to get up in the morning and say, okay, let me power through today. And you're trying to get stuff done. And you're trying to cross things off your list. And you're trying to fulfill obligations. And I don't think that we take enough time to stop and notice especially with kids. Most parents haven't perfected, understandably, because it's so hard, uh, haven't perfected the art of noticing. And I think you have to be intentional about that. And just noticing things. I mean, I have to say, and noticing things is not taking pictures of everything. Noticing things is noticing things. One of my favorite parts of this podcast, talking to people like yourself, one of the most accomplished writers in the past few decades, easily. I mean, every book you write goes on to be number one. And it's a testament to a lot of the hard work and everything you do. But you said, you know, you pushed really hard for 10 years. What would you say to people? Because you had already made it. You didn't have to keep pushing super hard. What would you say to those who are are pushing constantly? I mean, I, I literally have never in my life thought to myself, I've made it. Literally, crazy. that thought has never crossed my mind. I want to do good work. That's what that's what drives me. I want to do a better book than I did last time. That's really what powers it. And what happens externally is sometimes gratifying and sometimes frustrating. Uh, you know, I often don't have any control over that. What I do have control over is do I produce stuff that is excellent? Do I produce material that is useful to readers, that is engaging, that is entertaining? That's things that I can look back on years from now and be proud of. Um, I just truly, like, I want to do good work. That's my goal. You know why that makes sense? Because saying you've made it, why not take time, is implying that you were trying to make it somewhere. I don't know what I'm trying to make. What am I trying to make? (laughs) Make where? I'm just just trying to contribute and produce good things. And, and And there's no end to that. There's no, like... You know, there's no finish line to that. It's um, James Cars wrote a book 40 years ago, maybe, that's instructive on this, where it's called Finite and Infinite Games. And he says, you know, a finite game, the goal is to win, and the infinite game, is the goal is to keep playing. An area I've struggled with in preparing for this interview and thinking about it is regret implies to me that um, I know the outcome of the other choice. And... I don't know how I can regret something if I, I can't know the outcome of the other choice. You, uh, you don't have to know the outcome to regret the choice. Um, it's the choice itself that you regret. Now, the, now your, your visions of the outcome might give you some clues about the wisdom of that choice. 
But regret is not about saying, perfectly predicting a counterfactual set of circumstances. It is about look scrutinizing a decision or an indecision and saying, you know what, given what I knew at that time, I blew it. It's possible for us to make um, uh, decisions that were like stupid decisions at the time that ended up working out. That doesn't make them good decisions. Um, you know, and, and on this, I mean, I don't know, have you had Annie Duke on your show before? I haven't, but her thing about, you know, you can't focus on the result the way right. she does it in cards. Yeah. Right, right. You have to think about the decision itself. And I, and I found that a lot of people, when I talked to them about their regrets, were thinking that way, that they weren't conjuring visions of how everything would be perfect in their life if only they had taken that action or not taken that action. I think what they were thinking about is that maybe things would be better. Uh, but also the big thing, especially with regrets of inaction, regrets about what we didn't do, are simply knowing what would have happened, mm. even if it wasn't necessarily perfect. That's helpful. Because as I was thinking about it, one of the things I wish I did when I was younger was, and I mean like 15 years old, was dedicated even more time to sports. Like yeah. I, I just, but I don't know if I regret that because I just couldn't have known the outcome is too uncertain. I don't know if I would have ever put in more work. So really, I just wanted to be a professional but I don't know if I can regret the fact that I didn't put in too much work. I don't know. Sure you can. Sure you yeah. can regret that. And it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. The thing is, is that what sport did you play or what sports did Baseball. you Baseball. Okay. And so how far did you go? Um, I was going to play D2 in college, and then I opted to just play club in a D1. Okay. And so, but that's a, that's a perfectly sensible decision. I mean. Yeah. I just wish if, I think if I would have dedicated an extra 15, 20 hours a week in high school, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Like if I would have dedicated that's the regret. My high the, reg years. the regret, the regret, the regret is that you the regret is that you didn't know. And it also sounds like the regret is that you 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 might have had some of the innate talent, but you you regret the lack of conscientiousness, the lack of dedication. Mm. And and I think what's interesting about that is that 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 ends up being instructive, all right? So so again, this is the, this is the power of regret. Regret clarifies what we value. And it instructs us on what to do subsequently. And so the fact that this exists as a regret for you, to me, says, wait a second, you actually might value commitment more than you might than you realize that you value like getting going all in on something more value more than you realize. Um, and so the, the way that it instructs is like the next time you have the opportunity to, to go in all in on something to to really commit, maybe that's what you want to do. And listen, for those listening to this, this is why I want to have Dan on. This is why I recommend the book. That's an exercise I had not gone through until I became aware of your work here, which was to say right now in, in my career journey, I'm trying to figure out how much to go all in and balance kids and all that. Right. Yeah. But knowing if I don't put the effort required to get to the place I want, I know I will regret that. And that's kind of at the core of what you're saying, using it as a, as a, guide, I mean, I think right? that's what this, I think that's what this baseball regret is. It's, it's a regret, not about, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting, Chris, cause you're not, cause in all these regrets that I collected from around the world, there were a lot of regrets that were sports related mm. uh, like this. That is people who didn't, um, people who didn't put in the time. Um, and, and it's not because they said, oh my God, if I had put in the time, I'd be playing quarterback for the Dolphins. They said, um, I didn't step up. I didn't commit. And, and there's something about that, that there's something about that that bugs people. And what also happens is that sometimes there wasn't much of a trade-off. They didn't make much of a trade-off. That is, if you said, I, I didn't commit to baseball, but I was taking care of a sick parent, you might say, I don't regret that because... You know, I chose one value over another. But if you make a choice and there's no trade-off, then it bugs people. That trade-off idea is something I wanted to ask you about. You've dedicated a massive quantity of your life to writing, how many books is it? Six, seven, something like that? Seven. Seven. Seven books, right? Do you ever get frustrated with the fact that there were other things I wanted to do or just the potential for other tracks? Yeah, I don't know if I get frustrated, but I, I think about it sometimes. Yeah, you have one life to live and you can't do everything. The question then becomes, are there certain things that nag at me over the long haul? 
And those can be meaningful and, and as I said, clarifying and instructive. So if I say, I regret, I, you know, maybe I say, you know, oh man, I wonder what it would have been like if I had like started a business, you know, basically didn't do what I'm doing here, but actually, you know, started a business and tried to build a team and grow a company and so forth. And that doesn't really bug me that much. I mean, I, I think about it intellectually, but it's not like, oh my God, everything, because I don't think I would have been especially good at that. There might be other things that stick with me later on, paths not taken. But here's the thing. It's like, if those stick around long enough, they're telling you something. And also, it's it's not as if we inherently run out of options uh, every time. I and mean, I still have, I'm hoping, <laughs> you know, plenty of time left to try right. new stuff. And now a break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Sandland Sleep. Trying to get good sleep shouldn't feel like training for the Olympics. Whether you're a busy parent or you're just trying to stick to your workout routine, good sleep is essential to help you get there. Enter Sandland. That's the problem that they're out to solve. Unlike other sleep aids, Sandland doesn't just knock you out. Instead, it actually works to improve your natural circadian rhythm. They have plant-powered ingredients that work with the body's natural functions to induce a state of relaxation for grogginess-free sleep. Other sleep aids can be too strong. They can knock you out. But most people don't know that that doesn't train your body to sleep better the following night. It leaves it drowsy and dependent instead. That's why Sandland aims to train your body to relax and drift off to bed softly with its formula. They have two products that target the two areas people struggle with most. First, the fall asleep, which aims to get you to drift off to bed within 20 minutes. And then there's stay asleep, which is a time-release formulation. It helps you sleep so you don't need to worry about waking up in the middle of the night. Sandland has given our show a special discount for 15% off by using code SMARTPEOPLE15. Sandland doesn't do sales, but if you subscribe, you'll automatically get a 20% discount. The best part is the good sleep guarantee. If your first purchase doesn't work out, they'll refund your money. Simple as that. So head over to sandlandsleep.com and use our special discount code for 15% off, SMARTPEOPLE15. One last time, that's SMARTPEOPLE15 at sandlandsleep.com. And now back to the episode. This idea of regret to me and what I do for many years, I've been doing workshops and companies all across the country and talking about things like productivity and goals and the roles we play in our lives and things. And consistently here, a lot of people talk about these almost seemingly fork in the road decisions, right? I can stay at this company or go do this and go do that. And sometimes it's scary because I wonder, no matter what you decide, will there be a small amount of regret on not doing the other? Is life a constant dealing with regret of options? In some ways, that's up to us because there are, all, there are other ways to look at it. So does, um, does every decision we make come with opportunity costs? Absolutely. All right. So I said, okay, so I'm going to talk to Chris today from two to three. Yep. There are opportunity costs to that. That's, so what does it mean? I'm not going to answer my email between two and three. I'm not going to go for a walk between two and three. But so, so if we think about, oh my God, what have I, what are the opportunity costs of every decision that I make? We'll go crazy. <laughs> but I do think that it's, I do think that it's important to think about, I do think it's important to think about opportunity costs when we make decisions. I think it's essential to think about that. But also prospectively, something else happens. That is by choosing to talk with you, who knows? I could have opened up a whole array of different new opportunities in the future. So the question is, 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 is thinking about the, 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 the key is to think about these things in an intelligent way, not in a debilitating way. Let's kind of zoom out a little bit, talk about regret in general. And the two baselines I wanted to set was how do you define it? And where did this idea even come to you? Oh, okay. So, uh, so regret is an emotion. It's a negative emotion that comes from thinking about a decision we made or a decision we didn't make or an action we took or an action we didn't take in the past that was a mistake and that had you chosen differently, maybe the, the present would be a little bit different. The key aspect of, of, of regret is that it's an emotion. It's an emotion and it makes us feel bad. It's really, I just want to just embrace that. It's, it's an unpleasant emotion. I don't like experiencing regret. Nobody likes experiencing regret, but that's what it is. Now, how did I come to write this? Um, I think it's because I was dealing with some regrets of my own. 
Uh, and also to your earlier question, I also was at a point in my life where, to my surprise, I had some mileage on me where I, you know, looked back and said, holy moly, like, I'm, you know, like what you were saying, it's like, you know, wow, Dan, you've been doing this for 20 years. And I'm like, what are you, what? <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and so, but I also had, as we were just talking a moment ago, I think I have some, I think I have some mileage ahead of me. And so, uh, so it was really uh, that, that, that my time in life. And also, you know, I also like to explore topics where there is a gap between what we believe and what really is the case. And I think that our, our understanding of regret is completely wrong. We think of it as something that makes us weak. I'm convinced it can make us strong. We think that we should never look backward. I think we should look backward. We think we should be always positive all the time. I think that's bullshit. And, and, um, and so, um, so once I sort of had sort of thinking about my own life, and then looking at some of the research, I said, wait a second, we need to reclaim this emotion because we don't understand it well enough. I love that. I love the approach of let's figure out where we get things wrong. What do you think is the number one thing we get wrong about regret? Um, that it is inherently dangerous and inherently negative, inherently destructive. And that's just flatly wrong. Uh, regret, regret can be incredibly not destructive, but constructive. Uh, regret doesn't have to make us weak. Regret can make us strong if we deal with it right. And this is the key. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to be able to deal with it right. But I think that's it. The other thing is that, is that I think a lot of times when we as individuals experience regret, when we feel a sense of regret, we think that somehow we're unique. Oh, my God, I, I have regret, but everybody else is so positive. I must be alone. And that's not true at all. Regret is universal. It's ubiquitous. It's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. I heard you say that the idea of no regrets isn't just bad, but it can genuinely mean you are a sociopath or you have a broken brain. Tell me about Well, I that. mean, if we think about who doesn't have regrets, all right, who doesn't have regrets? Five-year-olds don't have regrets. So your three-year-old probably doesn't have regrets. Why? Is your three-year-old a boy or a girl? Boy. So he definitely doesn't have regrets then. So a three-year-old boy does not have any regrets. Why? Because his brain hasn't developed. Regret is actually really cognitively complicated. You're talking about getting in, you're talking about like traveling backward in time in your head and negating what really happened and then getting back in your time machine and coming to the present and seeing the present is slightly reconfigured because of what you did in the imaginary past. I mean, it's really hard. And so five-year-olds, three-year-olds can't experience, can't experience regret. People with lesions in the orbital frontal cortex of their brain can't experience, can't experience regret. People with certain kinds of Huntington's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, can't experience regret because they have diseased brains. And sociopaths uh, have a you know brain disorder. And so everybody has regrets. And so if you if you genuinely don't have regrets, and I'm not kidding about this, if you genuinely don't have any regrets, if you never feel regret, you might have a problem. Hmm. And so the interesting thing about that is that. So because remember, at the top, I said regret is negative, right? It doesn't feel good. And yet it's ubiquitous. So what's wrong with us? Are we why are we programmed to feel bad? That seems destructive, right? But it's not. The reason we are is that because regret is useful. It's a useful emotion. Again, as I've said many times now, if we treat it right. And the problem is that no one ever instructs us on how to treat it on how to treat it right. Well, and we're definitely getting into that. I'm a little nervous talking to you about this. Here's why. I don't want to be a sociopath and I don't want to have a diseased brain. And it might be repetitive to those listening. I struggle with the idea that if I enjoy where I am currently, I can regret a past decision knowing that that past decision made differently would have gotten me to a different place. But you can hold both of those things in your head. Okay. So you can say, tell me, give me a, give me a for instance here. Give me, be concrete here, specific. Ah, I got my degree in finance. I worked in finance for five years. Didn't like any of it didn't add to it. It could have been gone from my life and I'm fine with it because uh, it's nothing that I do now. I, you know, it was really for money's sake. So do I regret getting a degree in finance, going into that, not asking myself earlier in life, what do you actually want to do? What motivates you? What I don't know because by going through that, it made me who I am. And I like this person. That's what I'm, that's what I'm concerned about. You can still like this person and still regret the decision. By, by regretting the decision doesn't mean that you're somehow um, declaring the you you are right now unworthy. What you're saying is, is that 
you're doing something that's psychologically helpful. You're saying, okay, so I recognize how my choices led me to where I am today, and, and I'm okay with where I am today. But you already told me what you regretted. You said it yourself. You said, I regret doing things only for money. I regret doing things because I wasn't sure what I was really into. That's what this is. This is what this is what. So this is where regret is clarifying to you. It's clarifying. Hey, I'm Chris. You know what? Money's not the most important thing in my life. You know what? What is important is doing something that I actually care about. Now, the fact that you have that regret, that's clarifying what you value and it's instructing you on what to do. But it doesn't mean that because you regret it, that somehow you're in a shameful position. The Chris of now is perfectly cool, you know, so it's it's not a, it's not either or. You can be perfectly content about where you are and still have regrets about some of the choices you made and still learn from those regrets. That's it. It's not the decision of, in this case, going into finance. Uh, whatever, that is what it is. But looking back and saying, what about that was incongruent? Exactly. A focus on money, a focus on prestige, caring about what right. other people think, and then using that Bingo. to live differently. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. How did you get to that? Like, I mean... It must have been through writing this book that that became apparent. Was there an aha moment? Yeah. Was there? Well, no, I don't have aha it. moments. I don't have aha <laughs> moments. I show up and do the work. And and uh, no, I think that's. I think again, if you go deep enough into this emotion and how it operates, what its mechanics are, how 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 we can use it, I think that's the inevitable conclusion. And the problem is, Chris, I don't think it's even that insightful. The problem is, is that is that no one ever no one ever teaches us that. Um, and so what we want to do, we have this philosophy of no regrets, which, as you were saying before, is, is, is nonsense. And so we think it's like, well, my life is OK right now, so I couldn't possibly have any regrets because you're not supposed to have regrets. And that's nonsense. You could say my life is OK right now and I have a couple of regrets and I'm going to learn from them. What about the idea of living to minimize regrets? Is that healthy or not? Yes, it's, it can be healthy. We have to do it right, though. And how um, do we. OK, so should we get into that? I feel like we should. Sure. How well, do let's, we... let's talk about Sure. So what we so when we when we talk about learning to living to minimize our regrets, there are a couple of there are a couple of issues here. One of them is that when we try to anticipate our regrets, we sometimes over index on fears of risk. We sometimes we sometimes uh, anticipating our regrets too much can make us risk averse. And let me give you an interesting example of this, which has to do with um, multiple choice tests. So. What you see is like, let's say you're going along and you're you're taking a multiple choice test and you say number seven, the answer to number seven is B. And then you go to eight and nine and 10, 11, 12, and then 13, you're like, wait a second, maybe the answer to number seven was C, not B. All right. Question is, do you change your, do you change your answer or do you, or do you stick with your first instinct? And most of the test taking advice is stick with your first instinct. Your first instinct is right. And what the evidence shows us is that that's bad advice that actually people are more likely on average to switch from a wrong answer to a right answer than from a right answer to a wrong answer. Okay. Now why, but in spite of that evidence, people still stick with their original answer. Why? Here's why. Because they anticipate feeling a huge amount of regret if they happen to switch from a right answer to a wrong answer and not very much regret at all if they just stick with a wrong answer even though the consequences are exactly the same. And so as a consequence, so the result of that is that we anticipate more risk than we think and we make a suboptimal decision. That's just one of many examples of that. Now, not to get lost in the weeds here, so that's one thing. The second thing is that when we anticipate our regrets, we can't anticipate and minimize every regret. We'll go nuts, all right? Gee, should I wear this running shirt or should another? Which will I regret more? What should I have for dinner tonight? Should I have the pasta with mozzarella and mozzarella and salami, or should I have the pasta with shrimp? Oh, which was, um, which will I regret more? I gotta buy a car. Should, uh, will, what will I regret more, the blue car or the green car? We'll go crazy. What we have to do is we have to think about what we are legitimately going to regret in the future, and it's a very small number of things. And I think when we know what they are. Um, and it comes out of some other research that I've done. So if we make decisions, for instance, we, we can we can back into this. Yeah. But it's pretty. So let's think about let's let's think about the me of, of, of 10 years from now. The me of 10 years from now is not going to care whether I have a blue iPhone case or a green iPhone case. OK, so I can try to minimize my regret about that, but it'd be a fool. It'd be a fool's endeavor. Here's what the me of 10 years from now is going to care about. Did I do something bold and take a risk that a sensible risk that allowed me to contribute more, learn more, or grow. If I don't do that, the me of 2032 is going to be a little bit pissed. 
uh, if I do the wrong thing. I'm at a juncture right now and I can do the right thing, I can do the wrong thing, I do the wrong thing. The me of 2032 is probably not going to be happy about that. Um, think about things like connection and love. Did I reach out to people I care about? Uh, if I don't do that, the me of 2032 is, is going to have a few words with me. But so what we want to do is we want to maximize on what we know we regret enduringly, which I have some evidence of, um, and then and then essentially just chill out about everything else. And now a quick word from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. As a small business owner, you are juggling 100 balls in the air and don't have time to interview candidates who just aren't qualified for your role. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier for you to find the people you want to interview faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Simple tools like screening questions make it easier to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com smart. That's linkedin.com smart to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. I want to get into the evidence, but the more we talk, and I had heard you say this and thought of this, but it just keeps happening, which is, is regret the clearest way to determine your values? Clearest. I don't I know. Mean, so One of the look, clearest? Absolutely. Yes. That's what I was going to say. I mean, essentially, when you're talking about iPhone case, cars, or relationships, say, right? Uh, if you think through which one will I regret more, essentially you're asking yourself, which do I value more? It's it's synonymous. And I think that's so important because a lot of work around growth and development is about values, but that's a right. really hard thing because it's a little ambiguous. But regret Good due point. to how much it feels, I think can help you clarify. Great. I, I agree with that. That's a great point. That's so cool. You know, I heard one time somebody say um, one of the best ways to have a happy marriage is early on, uh, if it's something you want to keep, really make the commitment to yourself that you will never do anything to uh, put that in harm's way, because then in the moment, you've already trained your brain and your body. Yeah. yeah. And this really is a subject that makes sense to me. I, I've done this my whole life, and I just can't imagine doing anything to put the thing I value most at risk. And so it's a way to live without that regret. And then that becomes a guide. Great point. I, I, I mean, I think, that's, I, I think that's good. And so, so I think that you, that, that regret is a, is a clarifier. And the reason it's a clarifier is that if you say to people, if you, I think you make a very insightful point. So some of it has to do with the emotional side of it. So since regret is an emotion, uh, but it also has to do with direction and indirection. If you say to me, what do you value most? All right. I, I think that, that's a little abstract. And it also, I think, puts people in a performative mode. So they want to give a really, really good answer. Um, oh, I value service to community. I value faith in God, you know, uh, and they might not in their day to day lives. And so regret is a more of an indirect way. It's an emotional it's an emotional and it's indirect. And therefore, it's probably more clarifying than asking the question directly. What do you value? Yeah. Well, Dan, you did some amazing work around this with your global survey and some other things. Tell us about the way you gathered these results. And then what was the, um, the output as it relates to the four regrets? Yeah, so well, I did two big pieces of research of my own. One of them was called the American Regret Project, which was a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population. We put together a sample of 4,489 Americans, you know, a large enough sample so that we could weight it to give us information about demographic differences and attitudes on regret. So that's one thing that I did. The second thing that I did was something called the World Regret Survey, where I just collected regrets from people all over the world. It's crazy. We're now over 19,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And what I found in looking at those, 
that qualitative piece of research. One is quantitative, it's, it's about numbers. The other is qualitative, it's about stories, is that in the qualitative piece of research, I discovered something that the quantitative piece didn't reveal, which is that when we typically look at regrets and we try to figure out what people regret, we organize them by the domains of life. So this is a career regret. This is a romance regret. This is a finance regret. And what I found is something more important going on beneath the surface when I looked at the World Regret Survey responses, those thousands and thousands of written stories about what people really regret. I found that deep down there were four core things that people all over the world regretted over and over and over. And what were they? Well, one is foundation regrets. Uh, the foundation regrets are, if only I'd done the work. These are regrets about small decisions people make early that accumulate to terrible consequences later. Things like spending too much and saving too little. Uh, things like uh, bad health choices, smoking, uh, not, uh, things like not working hard enough in school. Second category, boldness regrets. Boldness regrets are, if only I'd taken the chance. Very big category. These are people who regret not asking somebody out on a date years ago people who regret not speaking up, people who regret not traveling, people who regret not starting a business and instead staying in a crappy job. So that's boldness regrets. Third category, moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. Again, we talked about this very briefly. You're at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. You do the wrong thing. Many people, most people, I'm convinced, feel bad about it. Um, and so we have a lot of regrets in this category about uh, bullying, a lot of regrets in this category about marital infidelity, those kinds of things. Fourth and final category are connection regrets. Connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. These are regrets about the full spectrum of relationships in our lives and relationships that were intact or should have been intact that somehow come apart. And they usually come apart in slow ways, slow drifting ways. And what happens is that one person wants to do something and reach out and they say, oh, no, it's going to be too awkward to reach out. And the other side's not going to care. And so they don't. And it drifts apart further. And then it becomes more awkward. And they feel like the other side's not going to care. And so connection regrets um, are uh, about relationships that have just drifted apart. And we haven't done anything to repair them. And, and those are the biggest category and in some ways the most painful. As you were talking about that, and you were talking about 109 countries, uh, it made me think of one of your past books, To Sell is Human. And I was just couldn't help but to think like to regret is human, but uh. to, we can learn from it globally as well. Did you find a difference amongst geographic region, country? I mean, I know you even break things down by state. Was there a, a glaring difference in how we view regrets? There were far fewer. So, so in the qualitative piece of research, I can't, since it wasn't a random sample, I can't make airtight claims about demographic differences and national differences. What I saw just reading through them all was a surprising lack of national variation, a kind of wow. a shocking lack of national variation to the point where, you know, um, a 43-year-old guy in... Amarillo, Texas, often would sound, you know, sound much similar to uh, from a 68-year-old woman in Tel Aviv or a, you know, 19-year-old um, woman in Bangkok. I mean, they, they're very, very similar. And even when I look at the the quantitative side of it, the quantitative side of it, um, where I could make claims about demographic differences, there weren't that many far fewer than I expected. The big demographic difference in the U.S. public opinion survey had to do with age. And what we found was that when people are young, they tend to have equal numbers of action regrets, regrets about what they did, and inaction regrets, regrets about what they didn't do. And as people age, that changes. It's the inaction regrets take over. That was a really big very, very big demographic difference. Beyond that, there weren't that many differences. There was a greater degree of universality than I would have expected. Let's talk about the inaction regret. I mean, I'm almost 40 and I just, I, I'm feeling these types of things, right? Yeah. Given, you know, look, we understand that. I think cognitively we get it. Okay, do the things you want to do, but it's much harder than that. You've spent years thinking through this. What would you tell somebody on how to utilize this global information 
to take action on risky things? How do yeah, we think I mean, through I, I it? Think that I, I don't want to say that people should take every risk that presents itself. Right. But I think what they should, I don't, I don't believe that. I think, it's a, I think it's a matter of sensible risk. So if you say to me, you know, so is it a, is it a risk for me to, um, okay, I'll give you an example. So as you can see, I'm in, a, I'm in, I'm in running clothes right now as, we, as you, you and I are talking. It's actually a pretty nice day here in Washington, D.C. So maybe I'll go out for, maybe I'll go out for a run. Um, to me, it's a risk to run with my headphones on when I'm in these busy streets because I might not hear a car coming. Okay, so I can say, "Oh, you know, bias for you know, like no, that's not a risk that I'm going to take." But I think that for other kinds of other kinds of risks, um, risks where we're saying, "Should I start a side hustle? Should I ask that person out on a date? Uh, should I take that trip?" I think what we want to have is 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 a slight bias for action, uh, because or or a way to actually really scrutinize, you know. How much risk, how risky is this really? How risky is this? And I think a lot of times we over-index on the risk of those kinds of things, things that require not, some, things that require not so much putting us in, a, in physical danger, but things that require putting us in some kind of emotional danger of being rejected by someone we like or by you know, not being a success professionally. I think that we overstate those risks and that when... You he, when you hear these thousands of people, many of I got so for, let me let me put it more concretely. I got lots of people in this database who started businesses, and they failed, and some of them regret it, but many of them don't because they they did something, they tried it, uh, and so I think that's real. I think that's really the case. So I think when it comes to when it, when it comes to things like like awkwardness, when it comes to things like what would other people think. When it comes to things like emotional risk, you actually want to push a little bit harder. Um, when it comes to things like physical risk, I, I don't know about that. But when it comes to those kinds, of, I, I think we're over-indexed on fears of awkwardness. We're over-indexed on thinking other people are somehow scrutinizing us. Uh, we're, over, we're over-indexed on, on how much professional risk there is sometimes in taking action. And now a break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Fast Company Press. Fast Company Press is a book publishing company looking for authors who think differently. As the publishing imprint of Fast Company magazine, they bring the stories of thought leaders and innovators to life. Fast Company Press publishes business books with the same commitment to quality and design that you've come to know and love in their magazine. Fast Company Press has a unique publishing model which allows authors to retain their rights while also having national distribution to major retailers. Its authors enjoy the influence of Fast Company's support in print and digital channels. Fast Company Press has a roster of innovators, rule breakers, and bestsellers. Do you have a book idea ready for consideration? Visit fastcompanypress.com podcast for a no-charge manuscript evaluation or publishing consultation. That's fastcompanypress.com podcast. And now back to the episode. You know what I love about that, Dan? Uh, it, it brings in everything I know, which is admittedly not expert level about the brain, but we over-index on, call it emotional risk, under-index yeah. on actual danger, right? Physical yeah. risk, perhaps. I, I know there's a lot of research about humans being bad at risk assessment because yeah. we operate off of this old model of tribalism. If you get ostracized from the tribe, you die when no, that's no longer the case, right? Great point. And, that's and a really that's good just, point. It's fascinating. We also don't we also don't know math and and we don't understand math and we're tribal in other ways too. So let me give you an example here. So, you know, it's like at this point as we're talking here in Washington D.C., it is absolutely lunatic and unnecessary for anybody to wear a mask outside because of COVID. <laughs> and yet there are people there are people wearing masks outside, and these people will willingly go drive on the Washington Beltway, which is a risk. Yeah. Yes. Yes. A I'm so risk. with you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's also reminding me of that taking a risk thing. As you ask people questions around the time when you and I last interviewed, I actually said, uh, I'm going to try and go become a golf club professional. And I went and I worked at a golf club for a year, making $9 an hour. And uh, it was such little money that I had to move back in with my parents. And the single reason to this day is because I didn't want to get to my deathbed and ask what would have happened. There you go. I, I think that's kind of what your research is 
analyze it and then make decisions, but have that as an idea behind it. But you're a good example of that. Like this, that is you, you, you decided to take a year to become a golf pro. And to my knowledge, you're not it, playing in the PGA tour. It did not and, work. Yep. And that's, that's cool. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. Now so, you don't have the you don't have the what if you don't have that inaction regret you don't have that nag of that 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 cloying scraping of what would have happened what would have happened what would have happened. I'm still impressed with the global nature of this. I'm curious if you spend any time thinking about what does it mean for humanity to feel very similar regrets. Does it does it make it even more true that we can live by these things and probably at least increase our chances of living a life that we're proud of? I think I think what these four regrets tell us is, going back to our earlier conversation, is they tell us what we value the most. So when this chorus of people tell me, these are the things that I re we regret, they're also saying these are the things that we value. And so these four regrets, as you know from the book, operate as a photographic negative of the good life, a reverse image of the good life. So what do people want out of life? They want some degree of stability. I think that's generally the case for people. Uh, they want boldness regrets. They want to be able to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life. They don't want to waste their time on the planet. Third, they want to do the right thing. I think most people actually want to do the right thing. Those are the moral regrets. And they want love. They want, you know, not only romantic love, but they want a full the full spectrum of love. And, um, and so I, I think that's why that when you go deeper into what people truly regret and you go beneath the domains of their life, what you realize is that around the world, you know, there is, a, there is a great deal of universality about what makes a life worth living. Did you feel that writing this book changed you in any meaningful way? And if so, what was it? Yeah, I think it did. I think every, every, everything that we do as human beings changes us in some way, um, particularly when you do a deep dive into something so emotional. I think for me on a small level, well, I mean, it did, there, are, there are a couple of things. Number one, I think it made me realize that I'm not that special. So, you know, I thought I think about my my regrets. So I have some regrets about kindness, but I'm totally not the only one with regrets about kindness. All right. So it's like, oh, OK, sort of normalized those kinds of things. Sort of more tactically, what it did is on the connection regrets, it really did change me because I had so many stories of people who were had friendships or relationships with, with colleagues or siblings or other relatives that slowly drifted apart. They said, okay, it's going to be uncomfortable reaching out and the other side's not going to care. And they're wrong. It's always less uncomfortable than they think. And the other side almost always cares. And so to me, if you think about regret as a juncture, if I'm at a juncture where I'm trying to decide, should I reach out or should I not reach out? My having arrived at the juncture itself answers that question that you should always reach out. And so that's changed the way I do things. What about the people who a lot are living at that, um, the boldness one, right? I feel like that's a that's an important one. I don't know. For people that listen to this show, very creative, artistic, want to build, there's a lot of risk. And you talked about risk tolerance. What would you tell those folks on just how to use this idea that it is a common regret on how to make bolder decisions? If it sticks, if it sticks with you for a long time, you know, you have to look for opportunities where that bias for action, you you can you can you can exert that bias for action. So if you're if you're thinking about starting a business, you know maybe the maybe the answer is start a side hustle. Um, don't go crazy. Just you know do something to scratch that itch right now. Um, and and so if you so I think that's true on the on the professional side. On the personal side, I mean again I, I I'm not one to be giving relationship advice, but let me give some relationship advice. If you have somebody <laughs> who you're interested in and you want to ask them out on a date, go for it. Get over yourself one. and go for it. The worst thing that can happen is they say no. It happens all the time. It's happened to me in my life. You survive. And you extinguish and you extinguish the what if. It's also unequal, right? One is they say no. The other is potentially you find your life partner. I mean, that's why we're so bad at this. But I. But here's the thing. The thing is, I even I even have a much more mundane approach to that. It's like, like if you say no, where if so let's say you ask somebody out and they say no. You're exactly where you started. <laughs> the, the worst case scenario is that they say no. Yeah. And you're not going to go on a date with them. So the worst case scenario and the status quo are the same. So there's so actually just intellectually, there's not much risk. Um, and 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 what, well, the other thing that I would say is that is that we are completely I forgive me for keep using this stupid phrase, no. but we're completely over indexed on feeling on fears of awkwardness. We fear much more awkwardness than really exists in life than really exists. 
Yeah. Because here's the thing. We think, okay, so, so, so we think it's going to be really awkward if, we're going to, if we reach out to someone we haven't talked to for a while. Because we have the mistaken notion that that person is evaluating us like a figure skating judge and saying, oh, how articulate was this email? How sincere was this email? When they're just saying, oh, it's so nice of Chris to reach out. That's a good, there you go. It's kind of that idea that uh, in your 20s, you worry what everybody thinks about you. In your 30s, you something. And in your 40s, you realize nobody cares. Kind of like people are focused on their own world. They're not as focused externally. Amen. We had a listener ask, and I'll make it concise for the time, but is it fair to judge our past decisions uh, from such a distance? So, you know, there's a book, uh, The Regrets of the Dying. Is it fair to, at say, 85, judge and really evaluate the decisions you made at 25? If you evaluate them properly, if you evaluate them based on who you were at age 25 and what you knew then, yeah, it's totally appropriate. Right. If you, if you say that that 25-year-old me should have all of the knowledge and experience of 85-year-old me, then it's foolish. And that's where we started it, and that's where we'll end it. Dan, uh, I, it was so good to connect with you again. This book is incredible, The Power of Regret, How Looking Back Moves Us Forward, another Dan Pink special, you know, really changing the narrative around this. Where would you drive listeners? Do you have a site set up for this? Anything uh, on there that we can learn more about? Just go to my website, which is go to my website, which is danpink, D-A-N-P-I-N-K dot com, danpink dot com. And um, everything that you need there, you can find. And we will link to that. All right, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. All right. What a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. That was our guest, Dan Pink. The episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and was edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Dan's book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, can be found wherever books are sold. If you want to reach out to the podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.